Welcome to Addiction in Simple Terms. My name is Dr. Julian Keats. I'm a specialist in addiction medicine with over 10 years experience assessing and treating drug and alcohol related problems. And in this podcast, I explain some of the important ideas in addiction to help you make sense of your experiences and hopefully make some changes for the better in your life. This is episode 10. In episodes 1 through 5, I started with how addiction works in the brain, then spoke about why people use drugs, the progression from experimental use through to ongoing regular use, and how some people get stuck in a cycle of addiction. In episodes 6 through 9, I spoke about some of the treatment approaches for addiction, dependence, and problems related to drug use. In this episode, I thought I'd do something different and take a look at stress, how it affects the body and your health, as well as the impact of stress on drug use and addiction. And when I use the term drugs or drug use, that includes illegal or illicit drugs, prescription or pharmaceutical drugs, and of course, alcohol, because that's a drug too. Okay, let's make a start. Stress. We all experience it. But what exactly is stress? How does your body respond? And why does it have such an effect on your health? In the first half of this episode, I want to bring you a new understanding of stress that draws heavily on the work of Dr. Robert Sapolsky, a professor of biological sciences at Stanford University in the USA. He's written many books and articles on stress and health, Various websites offer his lecture courses, and you can even find free lectures on YouTube. So if you find what I talk about here interesting, do a YouTube search for Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and I promise you, you won't be disappointed. So to begin with, what is stress? You might be thinking of getting stuck in a peak hour traffic jam every morning. You might be thinking about the pile of overdue bills you've got stacking up, or problems in your marriage or relationships. Or you might be thinking of your upcoming court case, or being unemployed long-term, or having a 30-year mortgage to pay off. But for ease of understanding here for the moment, we're going to strip it back to its simplest biological meaning. In biological terms, a stress is something that poses a physical threat to the body and the body's normal chemical balance, an immediate survival threat. Let me paint you a vivid example. I want you to think of the three minutes of screaming terror on the plains of Africa when you're being chased by a predator. You may have just been gored by a lion, blood's streaming from your wounds, and yet you still have to fight off your attacker, get the hell out of there, and run for your life. That's stress. So how does the body respond? Collectively, it's known as the acute stress response where acute simply means immediate or short-term. But you probably already know the acute stress response to some degree, because it's commonly called the fight-or-flight reaction. The first thing to activate is part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, and this causes a surge of adrenaline to be released into the bloodstream. A couple of minutes later, a family of hormones called glucocorticoids are also released, from the brain and from elsewhere. Together, this mix of adrenaline and glucocorticoids can be thought of as the body's stress hormones, and they're responsible for a well-orchestrated array of physiological changes that occur 
all around the body. The heart beats more forcefully and the heart rate increases. Blood vessels tense up and the blood pressure rises. The airways in your lung open up and the breathing rate increases, allowing more air into the lungs and greater oxygen delivery to the blood. And fat stores are mobilised, dumping energy into the bloodstream in the form of glucose and causing the blood sugar to rise. All these changes are designed to get as much blood and oxygen and glucose to the places that need it to fight the emergency at hand. At the same time, the muscles tense up and the reflexes sharpen, ready for action. The senses are heightened. Vision and hearing become acutely focused. Even the brain is affected, switching to a mode that favours short-term decision-making and automatic responses to find the quickest solution, rather than the much slower reasoning processes and careful thought that might be used to delay immediate gratification and work towards long-term goals for next week or next year. Because, folks, if you don't escape that line, there won't be a next week or a next year. And what else do you do in an emergency? You shut down any non-essential systems and divert resources from any future projects. It'd be madness to worry about saving anything for later when you have a life or death emergency right now. So your digestion and growth and repair and reproductive systems all shut down in response to stress hormones. And your blood itself responds to these increased levels of stress hormones. Inflammatory chemicals are released in anticipation of any injuries, and the clotting system activates, ready to stop blood loss from any open wounds. What effect does all this have on your health? Well, if you're lucky, in the short term, these changes allow you to fight off your attacker, turn on your heels, and run. Because put quite simply, if you can escape you might survive. But this highly adaptive system, the acute stress response and its associated hormones, as vital as it is in an emergency, was only ever meant to get you through the next few minutes. And for most animals, this acute stress response is triggered by a physical threat, a true biological stress. But us humans, and this is the rub, us humans with our much larger and more complex brains that allow us to think deeply about the past and the future and have a wonderful inner world and an infinite imagination, we can also turn on the acute stress response for imagined or psychological threats. Our stress response turns on involuntarily for all sorts of threats that have nothing to do with an immediate physical threat and that have very little or even no chance of causing any real physical harm. And when the stress response is turned on too often, think that everyday peak hour traffic jam, or left on for too long, think that upcoming court case, think long-term unemployment, then those increased levels of stress hormones begin to wreak havoc all over the body. It becomes a maladaptive response. The extra work done by the heart and the increased blood pressure leads to heart attacks and hypertension. The extra fats and sugar in the blood lead to diabetes, high cholesterol and clogging of the arteries. This in turn leads to stroke and peripheral vascular disease. Prolonged muscle tension leads to migraines, headache, neck pain and back pain. The overwired nerves lead to irritability, angry outbursts and difficulty calming ourselves to sleep. 
the changes in the brain that favour quick-fix, short-term decision-making and automatic responses can also manifest as addictive behaviours. So what can you do to reduce the acute stress response and minimise the long-term negative health consequences? Number one, engage in some regular physical activity. Regular exercise not only keeps your body well-conditioned, but can help relieve built-up muscle tension and gives the mind a chance to shift focus away from an unhelpful spiral of psychological worry. It may be going to the gym or playing a sport, it may be some other hobby, or it may just be going for a vigorous walk, but it needs to be an actively pursued outlet to reduce your levels of stress hormones and not just being on your feet all day as you go about your usual activities. Number two, make time to enjoy social activities and seek support from friends, family and confidants. We all know these sorts of connections can help sustain us through difficult times, but there's good scientific evidence for rats, monkeys, chimps and humans that when an animal is amongst a tribe or troop of others that it knows and likes, such as relatives from the same family, they have less of an acute stress response, less of a rise in stress hormones, than they do if they're alone or amongst a troop of strangers when faced with the same threat. Number three, develop your problem-solving skills so you can take more control of the things you can actually fix. Some of what causes us worry and psychological stress are the chores of everyday life that you've put off for one reason or another, but that gradually accumulate until it all seems too overwhelming. Identifying those things so you can get yourself organised and deal with things constructively as they come up can help avoid the pressure mounting as you slowly become snowed under. And number four, learn and practice some specific relaxation techniques. There are a variety to choose from. Controlled abdominal breathing exercises, visualisation-aided relaxation training, meditation and mindfulness, even yoga or tai chi. Choose whatever works for you, make a concerted effort, and set aside a few minutes every day and before you go to sleep at night. So there you go. The acute stress response makes perfect sense when you're being chased by a line, and may even save your life. But turned on too often, or left on for too long, and it has major deleterious effects on your health. Understand that, and take a few simple steps to reduce stress and control the stress response, and you'll reduce your chances of chronic disease and possibly add years to your life. Now we'll look at how stress affects drug use and addiction. In this second half of the episode, you'll hear me using the term chronic psychological stress a lot. Chronic simply means long-term. And so by chronic psychological stress, I'm referring to that state of having the stress response activated too often and for too long by things that don't represent an immediate physical threat to the body. This is the situation that I just touched on where having elevated levels of stress hormones for a prolonged period is no longer a helpful adaptation and actually ends up being unhelpful or maladaptive overall. One of the things that quickly becomes obvious when researchers study people with chronic psychological stress is that it rarely travels alone. If you take a group of people who score high on ratings of chronic psychological stress, you'll find they also have higher levels of mental health symptoms, such as depressed mood, loss of enjoyment in life, worry or anxiety, negative thought loops such as guilt about the past or loss of hope for the future, 
and even sleep disturbance. And it goes both ways. If you take a group of people with high levels of mental health symptoms or psychiatric diagnoses, they're more likely to score higher on ratings of chronic psychological stress. So we have a two-way relationship between stress and mental health problems. You won't be surprised though if I also tell you that both groups have an association with drug use and addiction. People with high levels of chronic psychological stress are more likely to have high levels of drug use and addiction, and people with more mental health problems are also more likely to have higher levels of drug use and addiction. And in the other direction, people with higher levels of drug use and addiction are more likely to report chronic psychological stress and mental health problems. So now we have a three-way relationship, a kind of triangle or triad of stress, mental health issues and drug use. Which comes first, which causes the other, which one's the chicken and which one's the egg, is a whole tangled mess. In reality, there's probably no one correct answer. Each person has their own backstory that has different beginnings and they may or may not experience problems in any of the three domains to different degrees. I think it's enough to say that stress, mental health problems and drug use commonly travel together. It's also common for people to report that at least part of the reason they use drugs is to manage stress or mental health symptoms. You'll hear things like, it relaxes me, it calms my nerves, or it's a way to escape the worries and unpleasant feelings for a while. Sometimes you'll hear the term self-medicating, a term I personally really don't like. But I get that. I understand it's an attempt to find a coping strategy. But it's such a two-edged sword, because aside from the fact that using drugs to cope has its own damaging effects on your physical health, it brings with it the risk of very easily progressing to a level of drug use that ends up doing more harm than good, and slipping into a pattern of addiction where other coping strategies are not explored, and it becomes increasingly difficult to change course, even if you realise you're on a downward trajectory. To tie this back in with the first half of the episode and our discussion of stress hormones, you'll recall that in an emergency, the stress response makes sense and serves its purpose by promoting quick-fix immediate solutions. This means a reliance on short-term decision-making without thinking about long-term consequences. Using some sort of drug to deal with the discomfort of psychological stress is very much in line with this mode of thinking. Typically, drug use will seem like it helps in the short term by providing immediate gratification and relief from symptoms, even though when you slow down and reason more carefully about the long term, you might come to a very different conclusion. How often have you heard someone say, in hindsight it was a bad choice, but it seemed like a good idea at the time? Activation of the stress response also favours automatic responses, responses that seem to require virtually no conscious thought and just happen on their own. This is because they're quick and easy and require the least thought and effort in an emergency when time's of the essence. The simple example is that when you see a spider or a snake, or maybe hear a car backfire and make a loud bang, often you'll find that you shriek and jump out of the way almost instantaneously, before you've even had time to process the risk on a conscious level. Translate this into drug use, and when people are under high levels of stress, there's a tendency to resort to familiar coping styles that they've known and used before many times and reach for their drug of choice. You might hear people say, before I knew it, I had a drink in my hand, or I didn't even think about it, it just happened. 
And finally, there's good evidence that high levels of the stress hormones, adrenaline and the glucocorticoids impair the part of the brain involved in impulse control and resisting urges, the frontal lobe cortex. This part of the brain is less active in the presence of stress hormones. I've had patients who have spent months or even years in recovery, carefully considering everything they do and working hard at staying sober in control and doing well at it, but then in situations of extreme stress, all of a sudden their old, unhealthy coping styles come flooding back and they find themselves with overwhelming cravings and end up relapsing. For this very reason, I warn all my patients about funerals, no matter how long they've been in recovery. A funeral is really a perfect recipe for trouble. You're grieving and emotionally vulnerable. You're almost by definition thinking about the past. There's a bunch of other people there who might have been your circle of drug-using friends in the past, and someone pulls out some alcohol or some drugs at the wake and says, come on, let's have one for old time's sake and pay tribute to the deceased person. And off you go. It rarely stops at just one. So to summarise those processes we see with high levels of stress hormones, we had short-term, quick-fix decision-making without consideration for future consequences. We had the tendency to automatic responses and coping styles. And there's the impairment of the frontal lobe cortex affecting impulse control. And that brings us to the end. I find this stuff about the effects of stress so interesting, and I hope you did too, and that you can see it's actually very relevant to a podcast about addiction. If you find yourself being chased by a lion or attacked by a T-Rex, I hope the acute stress response serves you well and you manage to live another day and share your story. But if your stress response is being turned on too often or getting stuck in the on position because of psychological or psychosocial factors, I hope you now have some understanding of why that's a problem for your long-term health and your efforts to control or avoid drug use. And that I've given you a few ideas how to go about reducing or managing stress in a healthy way to make some changes for the better in your life. My name is Dr. Julian Keats, and this is Addiction in Simple Terms. <laughs>